Well, it's very lovely to see so many people here, particularly people who uh, I saw Sunday. And Liz, I haven't met yet before, so it's nice that you've come, and I haven't introduced myself to you yet, so I don't know your name, but it's lovely to come. And then Ivan's back, so it's great to see you. So it's nice. Um, next, this coming Monday is a full moon celebration, and it's a very auspicious full moon. You know, in the Buddhist year, there's four full moons that are particularly important. And this one is one of the most spectacular of the full moons as far as the Buddhist calendar goes. And so what this represents is, is the time when the Buddha gave the discourse on the Four Noble Truths. And, you know, there's many teachings that are similar in all of the different uh, religions and philosophies of the world. Um, you know, harmlessness, kindness, generosity, integrity, uh, humility. Uh, these things are, I think, we can probably find everywhere. But the teachings on the Four Noble Truths is one of the teachings that sets the Buddhist teachings apart from other uh, world religions and other philosophies. And it's a particular way of looking at the reality that we experience, and rather than it being kind of a philosophical discourse, it's more like a practical way of bringing our attention. And within it is um, both something that's very simple and also something which is phenomenally rich and complex. So you get both. So the last uh, Saturday was an introduction of the Four Noble Truths and some of the life story of the Buddha, and uh, just a, a brief introduction to the First Noble Truth, which is, is that there's suffering in this world, and the different ways that we experience that suffering, you know, in terms of what it is like to have a body, what the experience of birth is, and aging, and how we experience sickness. You know, the, the realities of, of not having what we want and, and having to let go of what we, uh, what we love or what we cherish. It's the suffering that comes from change. You know, sometimes things can be magnificent, going really well, and they change. And it's also the suffering that comes with conditioned existence. And so you, we talked a little bit more about the context around which this experience of suffering is a reflection that we can know. And certainly, you know, in our society, in our world, it's not a, it doesn't take a whole lot to feel that in terms of the, the, uh, the difficulties that so many people experience and just being able to make ends meet and the kind of global problems that we're trying to negotiate. And so on our own personal levels, in our communities, and in a global scale, suffering is, is a fairly apparent thing to observe. And so in bringing attention to the fact that there is suffering as a noble truth, then the interest is, is, is rather than turn away from this, to begin to let this be a gateway for a deeper kind of understanding and peace to unfold. And so the first noble truth then follows on with the second noble truth, which is that there is a cause of suffering. And so in our conditioned existence and the way our culture is set up, oftentimes the cause of existence is identified as an external cause. 
and the external cause is the weather or the doctor or the politicians or the climate or the neighborhood or the circumstance or you know, the lack of financial resources that one has access to. And so these things are all externalized or the lack of uh, community support or for family support. These are externalized. And yet when we look at the Buddha's understanding of the second noble truth, what we're looking at is the internal cause, the internal mechanism of what gives rise to suffering. And this is a completely different way from our normal orientation towards thinking. Because normally, you know, it's out there. You know, and our immediate thought is just to figure out what's the out there thing that's wrong to blame it or to feel aggravated by it or to try and change. And this is a turning of one's attention to find the in here thing, what's happening in our relationship with what's happening that actually is the place where the suffering is originating from. So the first noble truth is, is it reflects on suffering and it brings an interest, a curiosity, a kind of a, an exploration of what can we learn from this. And the second begins to focus our attention more carefully at where is this actually causing, where is this caused? Within the second noble truth, and I'll talk about that a little bit more, is the whole exploration of the specific cycle that allows suffering to arise. And so oftentimes with Buddhist iconography, we are familiar with the wheel of life being held in the jaws of death. So the the cycle of samsara is depicted within the the teeth of of the, the Lord of Death. And there's 12 links... And in that, there are six realms, and in the middle of that, there's often a a snake and a rooster and a pig. And these are all symbolic and have very rich meanings and tell a very complex and intricate story of the specific mechanisms that give rise to suffering. And as a result of that, have all kinds of other uh, spin-offs in terms of understanding uh, the way things are related to each other. And so then the third of the four truths is that there's a cessation of suffering. And so, you know, one of the things that's helpful to remember, particularly for people who are intent in Buddhist inquiry, is that we get kind of revved up by suffering. And, you know, I know that, like, in the monastery, we can be a little bit like sniffer dogs where we're just constantly focusing on where the, snuff, where the suffering is, you know, and, and bringing our attention there. But what's really important is to remember that the third of the noble truths is that there's a cessation of suffering, that it is possible to bring one's attention to what is happening in such a way so that suffering ends. And what is different about this than the kind of suffering that ends that sometimes we talk about in a political situation or in other circumstances is the suffering that ends has different components to it. And one component certainly is about bringing more health and ease and well-being into the specific circumstances. But another component is to stop adding anything to the things that we have no control over. And so this is a radical departure from our normal appreciation of what the end of suffering is, which is usually organized around get rid of what I don't want, and get what I want. 
And so if get rid of what I don't want and get what I want is limited in terms of what one is actually able to affect, then the end of suffering is also limited in what one is able to realize. And so this teaching and this a way of bringing attention to what we experience starts opening up the door of possibility to something that's bigger than what we normally conceive of which is oftentimes organized around having our needs met, our desires satisfied, and get rid of things that we don't feel comfortable with. And then there's the fourth of the noble truths, and it has to do with the path towards the realization of the end of suffering. And I was going to speak more explicitly about that Monday night at the full moon meditation vigil. So that will be the kind of the theme of the talk. So tonight I wanted to talk about the second and the third noble truths, and talk about how they, um, what is uh, underneath them and what also they support. So when we look at um, the kind of the classical and very traditional way of viewing um, the world, there's a sense that um, one of the things that keeps everything going is desire. It's clinging. It's wanting things to be a particular way. And this force is like um, number one on the hit list in terms of the things that actually pull us and motivate us and are the reason why life unfolds in the way that it does, according to a person who doesn't have any training. So the force of desire is usually the most significant driving force of our life. And we organize ourselves in order to maximize getting our desires satisfied and to minimize having them frustrated. And yet, when we look at this from a meditation perspective and from the perspective of the Buddhist understanding, this needs to be understood as a kind of rich and juicy opportunity for beginning to start cultivating our attention in a way where we begin to relate to desire in a different way. Now, according to the Buddha's teachings, there's three kinds of desire. The first kind of desire is the the kind of desire where we're craving for sense experiences. So craving for an ice cream, craving for certain kinds of music, craving for certain kinds of tactile sensations, wanting it to be cooler or when it's hot, and wanting it to be warm when it's cold, you know, wanting to have certain kinds of smells, not bad smells, nice smells, wanting to have certain kinds of tastes, you know, so wanting the food to be a particular taste or flavor or texture. And then what we crave on the whole mental sphere in terms of the thoughts or moods or emotions or things that we have on that level. The second, and so we can see that, you know, certainly in this world and particularly in our contemporary society, you know, there's an awful lot that simply it's just an out-of-control realm on the sense, sense desire, you know, in terms of the relationship with sensuality and relationship with sexuality and a kind of deep-seated misbelief that if we have the, the, the sights and the sounds and the touch and the contact and the smell and the flavors that we want, that somehow that is going to be part of our happiness, our lasting happiness. 
But that is only a temporary uh, satiation of our desire. And oftentimes, the more our desire is satisfied, then the more it stimulates more desire. So it causes an increase in desire rather than a decrease in longing. And so what one then sees is, is, well, this kind of relationship of desire actually isn't very fulfilling. And we can see what happens in our own experiences when we move from one pleasant experience to another pleasant experience to another pleasant experience to another pleasant experience. It's not usually um, coming from a place of peacefulness. It's coming from a place of agitation and a kind of a fear of, well, what happens if we don't have pleasant experiences? The second type of desire is the desire for being or for becoming. And this has to do with wanting to be someone or wanting to have power, wanting to have position, wanting to be, you know, have one's opinions be important and taken above other people's opinions. You know, it's this whole realm. And it's interesting, again, to see how the desire for power can operate independent of actual need or uh, circumstance. And so in this particular story, I was reading uh, today some of the suttas or excerpts from the suttas. There's a story of a, um, of a person who asked a king. So this man, he came from a very wealthy family, and he decided that he was fed up. You know, and that what he really wanted to do was to renounce the whole worldly situation and move into a renunciant situation. And the king was like flabbergasted about, you know, what's the deal? You know, what is more satisfying about giving it all up than having it all? So this young man said to the king, he said, well, you know, if, if you knew that in the neighboring territories in the north that they, were, they were, had a, a lot of wealth, and they would probably be really easy to conquer. Would you want to conquer them? And he said, absolutely. And he said, well, and if you knew in the, in the south that they had you know, quite a lot of, of, of minerals and quite a lot of, of uh, other resources, and they were easy to conquer, would you want to conquer them as well? He said, well, a- absolutely. And so he went through all of the different directions. And so independent of the fact that this king already had a kingdom, that already had sufficient wealth, that already had um, enough to do what he needed to do, the desire for power was independent of the material circumstance that he needed, and it was just something that motivated his interest for acquisition of more land and more resources and more wealth. And so this young man said, well, he says, well, this is part of the reason why I want to (laughs) go. Because no matter how much you get, it's never enough. Ajahn Amaro was talking about uh, a conversation that he had with one of the Rockefellers, and I don't remember who. And so it was, it was, again, it was a conversation on the whole principle of desire. And, you know, and when is it enough? And whoever he was speaking to said, yes, but just a little bit more, you know, just a little bit more. And so we can see, you know, the way this operates in our mind and grabs hold of our interests and attention. And then as a result of that, our lives are motivated in that direction. There's a third kind of desire. And this is a desire that on one hand might be a little bit more difficult to see, but on the other hand, it operates a lot. And this is the desire not to be. So certainly, you know, when we have kind of experiences of 
thoughts of suicide, you know, there's a sense that if I can get rid of my physical body, that's going to be the end of suffering. That's an experience of the desire not to be. But it's not only as um, gross as that. It can be the simple movement away from something because we don't want to know about it and because we don't want to feel, we don't want to experience it. So when the interest or the attention deliberately moves away from whatever is happening because we don't want to know or feel it, that is another expression of this whole desire not to want to be. And we can see the results of that. Certainly when we do that in a very big way, then we have the consequence of all these things that haven't been attended to and the result of that. So this whole world of desire is something that needs to be understood and investigated and attended to in order that we come into the right relationship with it. So it isn't a matter of saying that it's not okay to desire. That's not what this is saying. It's saying that when we're not attending to where our desires are leading our attention in a skillful way, then the result is is clinging and birth and uh, old age sickness and death. So in that sense, what happens is we can see, like for example, if you've got a hankering for a cup of coffee, Okay, so something pretty innocent, really, you know. So you have an idea of a cup of coffee, and so your mind thinks, oh, coffee, and then there's a thought, oh, yeah, the smell or the taste or how I feel when I have a cup of coffee, it's just great, or, you know, I'm really tired, I need a cup of coffee. So the mind begins to focus on this idea, and then with the idea arises the perceptions, and then the perceptions stimulate more thought. And then when the thoughts are pleasant, there's the desire to follow them. And so then we are following the thoughts and then thinking, how can I get a cup of coffee? Well, probably most people who like coffee have coffee in their house and a coffee grinder and coffee cups and can boil the water or have a coffee maker. And so it's not very complicated. So it moves from the arising of a thought into perception the perception is then activated into the possibility of fulfillment, and then the fulfillment begins to generate the interest of how do I actually make this happen. So in Buddhist language, what's happening is is that there's contact of thought, then there's perception, with the perception is feeling, with the feeling is a, a, a kind of a proliferation that stimulates desire, With the desire, it stimulates clinging. And with the clinging, there's a movement towards birth. And this birth is not having a baby. This is the birth of having a cup of coffee. (laughs) And then we have the cup of coffee. And then we feel the high that comes from it and the low that comes from it. Okay? So you've got the birth. And then with the birth comes the dissatisfaction of having had it or the fact that the stimulation doesn't last, and then the result, okay? So this cycle is a cycle that we can observe in our everyday life. We can see it arising in the moment, and we can watch how it arises, and we can begin to see the different flavors between what happens when there's the initial thought, and then all of a sudden there's this kind of festival that arises in related to the thought. 
and then and then with that festival it's like there's a movement in it's so it's like it's no longer a choice the coffee is happening there's no longer an opportunity to say is this a good idea do i need it right now it's a quarter to midnight it's like am i going to sleep the coffee is happening okay so the coffee is happening and then we are in it we're drinking it and so the capacity for choice after there is a certain level of of clinging is gone there's no more choice we're just operating on the results of the previous ways in which we've attended to the desire that has arisen beforehand now obviously with a cup of coffee it's not such a big deal and even if you have a cup of coffee at a quarter to midnight you have one night of consequences maybe the next day you're a little bit groggy but it's not that big of a deal but what is this illuminates is a whole pattern in the way that the mind perceives things and where we actually get stuck and the brilliance of this is, is that when we begin to understand where we get stuck, then that's exactly where we can place our attention in order to get unstuck. And so the place where we can cut this cycle that can, takes us into becoming and birth and old age and sickness and death is by watching desire. So contact arises, there's a feeling, there's a desire. When there is awareness of the desire, then at that moment there's the possibility, rather than it go into clinging and birth, it can just be desire. We can just know it as desire. So the feeling of a cup of coffee, the hunkering for a cup of coffee arises, and that can arise as a mental idea or one can smell some coffee or one can remember what it felt like to have a cup of coffee and all of that can arise and one can learn to cultivate attention so that in that arising of desire there's the clarity this is desire and this is what desire feels like now it still may be that you want to have a cup of coffee but when you have a cup of coffee with awareness then what that means is, is that you are choosing it rather than being driven by your desire. And when you choose to have a cup of coffee, then there's a, there's a moment of freedom in that choice, which is entirely different from when the desire is actually taking over your system and driving you. So if the whole kind of point, purpose of what we're doing in our meditation practice and what our inquiry is, is to learn how suffering is created and to begin to start unraveling it, dismantling it, then I hope it's really clear that understanding this is actually non-trivial. It's fundamental. Because if desire is the kind of big thing that drives us and keeps us tethered, into something that moves us towards suffering, then it's right there where we're going to be able to unshackle the tellers and find new options and choices and another level of peace. This whole cycle of dependent origination, one of the offshoots of it, or the consequence of it, is, is that when there is this, that arises, and as a result of that having arisen, there's something else because things can be seen in terms of their cause and effect relationship, then the result is, is that there isn't any unchanging permanent essence that you can locate in anything. And so the consequence of that teaching is, is, is that it frees up 
a sense of having to be the owner of the things that we experience. Things arise according to conditions. They don't belong to me. They are not things that I own, and it doesn't form my identity. Okay? This is a big kind of stretch for the way we normally relate to ourselves and the world, which is that I'm here, you're there, and this is somehow permanent, you're permanent, and between our permanent kind of peopleness, we interact and relate to each other, and we've got history and culture and memories and all the rest of that. And in fact, this is one that the, the kind of way that we perceive ourselves is one of the reasons why it is so challenging to let go of desire. Because oftentimes we have formed an identity around what it is that we desire. So not only are we moving against the craving that comes with that, we're also moving against the identity that is connected to it. And so a deeper exploration of the second noble truths is an inquiry and an exploration of what is known as the cycle of dependent origination. And this cycle of dependent origination then clearly, as an extrapolation, shows that there isn't anything that is permanent or fixed that you can locate in people or things or circumstances or what happens. Everything is arising because of conditions and when the conditions are no longer there, it ceases. So the good news is, is is, is that a lot of the suffering that we experience has to do with a wrong way of relating to what is arising. Taking it personally. This is who I am. I am this. And then as a result of taking it personally, having some kind of a battle in terms of whether it fits with one's idea of who one is or not, or whether it should be there or not. The challenge is, is that it is so counterintuitive from our normal way of operating that it's hard for people to get a handle on this uh, on the onset. And so there's no need to take this on as a belief. There's no need to, to actually accept this as the way it is. It's just the possibility of seeing that when you don't have a fixed person as a permanent owner of the things that that person experiences, what changes? Does that give any more space? Does that give any more room? Does that give any more sense of possibility to negotiate the huge range of feelings and thoughts and emotions and experiences with more sense of ease? So as an intellectual concept, we can explore it, see if it fits, see what there's resistance to or where there's questions or concerns. But there's no need whatsoever to take it on as a belief. What is in it, uh, what, what this whole teaching is about is an opportunity to investigate and see whether this makes sense or not. And then to begin to see, well, where, where is the rub? You know, what, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, and how does it work? There's some quotes in here, uh, both from the Buddha as well as from Nar- Narga Juna, 
that relate to this whole topic about essence and dependent origination and not-self. And they're a little bit thick, a little bit dense, but in, in case they might be useful, I thought I would read them. So just bear with me, okay? This is from the Buddha. At Savati, then the venerable Kachanagota approached the Blessed One, paid respects to him, sat down to one side and said to him, Venerable Sir, it is said, right view, right view. In what way, Venerable Sir, is there right view? This world, Kachayana, for the most part, depends on dualism of the notions of existence and non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with right understanding... There is no notion of a non-existence with regard to the world. And with for one who sees the cessation of the world as it is really with right understanding, there is no notion of existence with regard to the world. This world, Kachayana, is for the most part shackled by bias, clinging, and insistence. But one such as this, with right view, instead of becoming engaged, instead of clinging, instead of taking a stand about myself through such a bias and clinging, mental standpoint, adherence, and underlying tendency, such a one has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only dukkha arising, and what ceases is only dukkha ceasing. In their knowledge is independent of others. In this way, kachayana, there is right view. All exists, kachayana, is this is one extreme. All does not exist. This is the other extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata, that's another word for the Buddha, teaches the Dhamma of the middle way. With ignorance as condition, formations come to be. With volitional formations as condition, consciousness comes to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. But with the remainderless fading away, cessation and non-arising of ignorance, there comes to the cessation of volitional formations. And with the cessation of volitional formations, when there are no volitional formations, there is the cessation of consciousness. Consciousness does not come to be. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. And this is Nargajuna, who takes from this sutta And this is his masterpiece, the treatise on the root of the middle, middle way. It is unreasonable for an essence to arise from causes and conditions. Whatever essence arose from causes and conditions would be something that had been made. How is it possible for there to be an essence which had been made? Essences are not contrived and not dependent on anything else. If an essence does not exist, how can the thingness of the other exist? For the essence of the thingness is of the other is said to be the thingness of the other. Apart from an essence and the thingness of the other, what things are there? If essences and thingnesses of others existed, things would be established. If things were not established, non-things would not be established. When a thing becomes something else, people say that it is a non-thing. Those who view essence, thingness of other things, 
and non-things do not see the suchness in the teachings of the awakened one. And so what we have here is a linguistic and a logical way of being able to start taking apart this view that if we think something has an essential nature or an essence, then it cannot be conditioned. It has to have been there before the conditions. And so if there is conditioned arising, it cannot mean then that there's a permanent unchanging essence. And so this is a logical way of using language to begin to start picking apart what our intuitive sense is saying to us, which is is that we do exist. But when we start looking at this from a meditator standpoint, more so than a philosophical standpoint, then what opens up is this vast, huge space like the sky that allows things to arise dependent on conditions, but our relationship with it does not have to be one of identification. And that is a phenomenal movement towards freedom. So sadness can arise, grief can arise, anger can arise, illness can arise. It arises dependent on conditions, just in the same way that clouds pass through the sky. But we don't have to claim ownership of them or identify with them as being who we are in the same way that the sky is not uh, engaged with or preoccupied by the kind of clouds that are drifting through. And so life can happen and we can become increasingly more attentive and skillful. And with a lack of identification, there is a vast capacity for more more peace and more skill. Because oftentimes what trips us up is our identification with what we're experiencing is somehow discordant with what we think should be experiencing. You know? I shouldn't be experiencing this. That's not who I am. <laughs> they shouldn't be doing that to me because my relationship with them is different than that. And so our identity about how it's supposed to be then interferes with our capacity to negotiate what's actually happening. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't exist, that I'm just some kind of amorphous cloud that has no, I don't exist. It's not that. It doesn't take the other extreme. But what it does is it opens up the possibility to begin to start navigating some of this stuff in a way where there's a little bit more space. And that's the point. So the, the, the Four Noble Truths and the teachings of uh, desire and the teachings of Patichu Samapada, dependent co-arising, then give the opportunity for practicing in this in a way where there is, there is more possibility for freedom. And it's practical. It's not just mystical. Bringing attention to when desire arises is exactly the place where we find it can end. It's right there. It's not separate from there. So it gives us kind of instructions. It's a path of where you put your attention and how you relate to what you're putting your attention onto in order for there to be a greater sense of ease and well-being, a peace, and more capacity to respond with compassion and wisdom, both inwardly as well as around with everyone that one has contact with. It's wonderful.
So the last thing that I want to do is I want to read, um, there's a monk. So this is, this is a, a monk called Lumpu Dun. He was a direct disciple of Ajahn Man and one of the great lights of Dhamma in Asia in recent years. He reformulated the Four Noble Truths in a way that just, I mean, the Four Noble Truths is a pretty no-nonsense formulation, but this one is even more to the bone. I love it. He says, the mind that goes out in order to satisfy its moods is the cause of suffering. That's the first noble truth. That's the second noble truth. The result that comes from the mind going out in order to satisfy its moods is suffering. That's the first noble truth. The mind seeing the mind clearly is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. That's the fourth noble truth. The result of the mind seeing the mind clearly is the cessation of suffering. That's the third noble truth. (laughs) So you can see that when our mind moves out towards something, towards a mood, towards a cup of coffee, towards hankering for a feeling, towards wanting sensuality, towards not wanting to be, towards wanting to be, okay? When the mind moves out towards something, That's the cause of suffering. The result that comes from the mind moving out is suffering. When we see this, when we wake up to this, when we recognize what's actually happening, that's the cessation of suffering. Right there. The result of seeing the mind doing this is the path that supports realizing the end of suffering. So I'd like to close here now, and we can stop and have a break and have a cup of tea, and come back in a few minutes and have a conversation of what landed, what didn't land, what made sense, what didn't make sense, and how this may or may not be relevant to your own lives. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.